You will never become rich working for someone else is a homily many will recognise, although it's not strictly true. You have dreams and aspirations and decide to strike out on your own, to move to an area where the wealthy live in the hopes some of it will benefit you. Your chosen profession is not the route to wealth you expected and you become disillusioned. Your solution to your predicament? Theft. Then a mass murder of a whole family. This is the case of the Flactive Family Massacre, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I am Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello. Thank you for the continued support over on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you not only support our efforts, but also gain access to a wealth of extra perks, such as early access to episodes, bonus content, and even stickers. If you don't want to sign up to another platform, you can still support us via our host, Buzzsprout. Links in the show notes or by leaving a review. Every little thing helps us keep the lights on. Apologies in advance for any butchering of names and places, but we are off to France. A case not widely known due to the language difference, obviously. Le Grand Bourneau, I think that's right, in the French Alps, close to the Italian border. It's described as a commune, but it's a skiing village. Flashy chalets looks very Swiss. Think the sound of music. Usually a population of only 2,000 people, but lots and lots of tourists, and had actually been a huge part of the Tour de France, the cycling road race that's hugely popular in Europe. It's been the starting and finishing point and a number of staging posts many times. This is the kind of place that would attract money. King of the village was a chap called Xavier Flactif. The French pronunciation is Xavier, not an H as I want to do, or Xavier as some. So we're thinking X-Men here, yeah. Xavier had moved to Le Grand in 1999. He came from poor beginnings. His father was from Chad and his mother from Guadeloupe. Xavier Flactif was adopted at the age of three and we have no other information. He was a developer, buying land cheap, building properties and selling on on high prices to the Dutch and English who flocked to the resort. He built the largest chalet in the town and was the life and soul of the resort, along with his wife and three children. Life was good. Step forward, David Hotjat. He was born on the 23rd of October 1972 in a place called Arras in northern France. Arras is a medieval town, small population, about 70 miles southeast of Calais and 30 miles southwest of Lille. Pretty, but nothing much going on there. We don't know much about his childhood, except his father was described as a blue-collar worker and his mother was a cleaner. David is an odd one, described as angry, introverted and emotionally immature. He falls out with elderly neighbours in Arras, telling one 80-year-old, after falling out over a fence dispute, that I'm going to come and suffocate you during the night and set fire to your house, which is perfectly normal. David was a car mechanic, but really wanted the good life. So he and his girlfriend, Alexandra Lefebvre, looked into moving somewhere where they could thrive. Perhaps being surrounded by wealthy people would mean David could move up in the world looking after high-end cars. David spots an advertisement online in 2001 for a property to rent in the upscale resort of Le Grand Bourneau. 
David contacts the owner, Zavi. Zavi is exactly the type of aspirational figure David looks up to. Maybe he wanted to be him a mentor? David speaks to Zavi and agrees to rent a chalet from him and packs his girlfriend, many places say wife but I'm not sure, and his children up and travels the 500 miles south to start his future. But when they arrive, Zavi has bad news. The chalet he agreed to rent to them isn't available, but they can stay in one of his many other apartments until it's ready. David happily agrees. Over the next two years, David's dreams slowly become crushed. The chalet was never available, was rented out to wealthy tourists, and Zavi would make promises of next time, but David and his family would have to move from apartment to apartment as Zavi needed to rent or sell them. 36% of the population rent in France, similar to most of Europe. Furnished properties typically come with a one-year lease, whereas a standard contract on an unfurnished property is three years. Why was there no contract drawn? I don't know. Maybe... If it's an underhand, you yeah. stay here, sublet. I guess it's not a sublet because it's different because Zavi owns everything. But you know what I mean? Why Why is there no contract written up? No contract might be cheaper. I don't know. It's never clear. It sounded rather like David got none of the protections that you would have had from a contract and was getting fed up with it. The mechanic to the wealthy wasn't working out so well. Most of the cars were way beyond his capabilities or could only be worked on by authorised dealers. It was a very expensive place to live and they were struggling. Alexandra, his girlfriend, was also becoming a problem. Like David's mother, she was a cleaner and it seemed she struggled to find work, which is rather strange to me in an area where rentals for holiday lets were common. Nevertheless, both David and Alexandra took offence when Zavi offered her work. She didn't want to be the hired help of the landlord. She wanted David to be someone, and he better get his finger out and find a way of making their social standing more in line with what she expected. David agreed with her, but he struggled, and he and Alexandra would spend time with another couple who had also moved to the area from the same part of France as them, Stéphane and Isabelle Herimza. David and Stefan actually had met at work where they were both mechanics working in a garage in a village just a few miles away from Le Grand Bonneau. The Spanglish of all of these words is really making me laugh. It's like, bon, the croissant. <laughs> I'm wondering how much of it is accurate and how much is butchered, but it's very funny. And then I can see you before you say the word and your mouth, I can see your mouth like preparing to be like, ha ha. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on blooming Google Translate and all sorts of things like that. Well, the four of them just did not fit in with this wealthy enclave. They were all disillusioned. And so the two men, David and Stefan, got together and became burglars. They were not particularly successful because they didn't get rich, but they did manage to avoid getting caught. David also hated Zavi by this point. He and Stefan actually burnt down one chalet under construction by Zavi, but they didn't get caught. Everything changed on the morning of Saturday the 12th of April 2003 when Zavi's 14-year-old stepson Mario from his wife Graciela's first marriage turned up at the chalet. He lived with his father in northern France near Calais but would spend every holiday with his mother and stepfather and half-siblings. 
seven-year-old Gregory, 10-year-old Letitia and 11-year-old Sarah. Mario arrived at Lyon Airport and a local taxi driver from Le Grand Bonneau was waiting for him as per usual. They made the 100-mile trip as Mario had done many times and Mario jumped out of the car at the chalet eager to see his mother with the driver watching carefully from the car like the good guy he was to make sure Mario made it inside. But the house was locked and no one answered the door. Mario was puzzled. He was expected, but unusually, his mother didn't call him on the drive to the house. She knew when the plane would land, and that was their habit, a chat before he got there. So, he contacts a local friend of the family, who instructed the taxi driver to drop him off at their house whilst they tried to track down the family. Probably gone shopping and got stuck in traffic, or maybe someone got dates mixed up. No one could raise Graciela or Xavi on the phone. The friend and Mario go to the chalet the next morning and still no one is there. They managed to get inside and the house was silent but the curtains were drawn and the table was set for dinner yet the beds upstairs had been stripped of the bed linen. Mario noticed one of the family's cars was missing, a Toyota Land Cruiser. They are big, heavy vehicles, and Mario knew the winding roads around the resort, and he was worried there had been a crash and no one had found them. The friend and Mario report the family as missing on the Sunday. Police arrive and look around. Nothing is seemingly out of place that Mario knew of, except the car being missing, and the curtains being drawn would seemingly show the family had not been in the chalet the morning Mario arrived on the Saturday. Police do a search of the roads around the resort and no sign of the car. The police arrive back at the chalet on the Monday and undertake a search and find nothing to indicate where they were or if anything had happened. Police put out an alert to all regions in France as well as the neighbouring countries, Switzerland and Italy, to keep an eye out for their vehicle and they start to talk to the neighbours and villagers. What happens in small places like that, the rumour mill starts. Maybe Xavi had had a bad business deal, did a moonlight flit, etc. But there were rumours that the police did listen to and then investigate. Xavi may have been this larger-than-life character. He loved to gamble and throw big parties and take expensive holidays, which is fine, but when you can't actually afford to do so without maybe ripping people off, then it becomes a problem. Seems he had a really bad reputation with local tradespeople of not getting bills paid. He would buy land, start development of a house, get a contract signed with someone who wanted to buy it, then walk away before it was finished, leaving the builder who was doing the work out of pocket and the buyer with an unfinished property. One daughter was an accomplished skier who had won local competitions and had aroused the jealousy of locals, apparently. One neighbour had also sprayed Xavi's Mercedes with petrol and another had said he could happily strangle him. On the surface, he was a wealthy man with his business empire being worth some 2.4 million euros. Police find out that Xavi had 71 bank accounts. 
no one needs that many unless something is off. Police also find out that Zavi had been banned from running a business for 10 years in 1998 and actually had debts of 2.7 million euros, which is roughly 1.7 million pounds, when he disappeared. So the companies must have been in Graciela's name. Police go back to the chalet. Zavi's office there had seemingly been ransacked. A camera was missing, along with a telephone and a DVD player, but very small items and would not be the type of thing you would take with you if you were leaving in a hurry, would it? Computers had also gone missing, as had paperwork relating to the business. They have a closer look at the house. They found several tooth fragments, as well as brown specks in between the floorboards in the living room. They also discovered a 635 caliber gun cartridge just laying tucked away. This case goes way beyond the local police capabilities and fingerprints won't cut it. They decide to get a proper forensic search of the place done. And on the 11th of May, a team of specialists arrive. They use something called Blue Star instead of basic luminol to look for any blood trace. It's more expensive, but fluoresces brighter and for longer. It's so bright, you don't need total darkness to see. And importantly, it actually keeps any DNA within the blood evidence intact. They needed that. It's immediately apparent that there are sponge marks where blood had been wiped away in the one small sitting room area. They check the whole house. It's been wiped everywhere and drag marks are evident too. Police eventually determined that Graciela was attacked in the basement. Gregory's blood was in the kitchen in front of the fridge and a pool of Zavi's blood was close to Gregory's. Tooth fragments show Letitia was attacked in the living room and Sarah probably died upstairs in her bedroom. So I know France has not odd rules about firearms but there's only like a select group of people they can have firearms with like permits and it only lasts like a certain period of time. But you can't open carry anywhere. Mm-hmm. But he's saying there was a gun used mm-hmm. in at least somewhere that he'd found. Was it only one shell they'd found or they'd yeah. find multiple in different areas? Because if there's multiple areas where um, bodies or murders have been committed, what evidence is there for something else? Because if it's a gunshot here, but there's four other locations, then what's the, is there like blood spatter up the wall that's been wiped off? I'm wondering why there's only a gun used once, but I understand why, because it's loud. There's a bigger reason to it than that. I'll explain the further I get into it as the police investigate. But on the 13th of May 2003, which was roughly the same time as this search, the car, that land cruiser, was found at the Geneva Cointrin Airport on the Swiss side of the border. If it had been found earlier, maybe the results would have been different. But after what they found in the house, they went through that vehicle with a fine tooth comb. Most of the carpet had been removed and it had been cleaned, but they uncovered traces of blood throughout the vehicle. Again, it was the blood of all five of the Flactifs. They have the family's DNA, obviously, but they also have a sixth unknown DNA sample from the house that they can't match. At this point, do they have any suspects? No. It's a town-village area of around 2,000 people, high turnover rate, tourists, etc., It'd be hard to narrow something down. You're going to be looking at either random burglary gone wrong, but there was seemingly weird stuff taken from an office, like like it's like a DVD player and some stuff. 
someone from the village or someone that's owed money and now if they know that he's had some previously weird business dealings it could be someone from there yeah you i think you would start eventually suspecting people like david etc because it's like where is it happening there's only there's only a few avenues you can go down to start looking at suspects obviously not him specifically because his name's not been mentioned yet they've got no idea but you're gonna say they found some kind of forensics or someone somewhere well what you're saying is not incorrect, but when you've got somebody like he's got 71 bank accounts, they must have been thinking, oh, my God, it's got to be a business deal that's gone wrong. Yeah. You, you've got to. And you don't know where to. Well, obviously, they do know where to begin looking at these things, but it's a mammoth task. But they've got this sixth DNA. So the logical thing is test everybody that you can find in the village, isn't it? 2,000 people, like you say. But they actually test anyone they knew had come into contact with the family or knew the family, and it was actually over 130 people locally. And then they hit a match, which was David. Now, David... Why was he still there? Well, he lived next door. Yeah, but don't be there. Yeah. Well, David had been on their radar when he actually refused to provide a sample. He had no criminal record, and according to his family, he was a quiet, hard-working man, yet villagers also didn't like him. He was a wannabe, and he just did not fit. And David was spotted by the police watching the house being searched. Fair enough, neighbours are nosy. But he was using binoculars. He was also heard mouthing off about the state of the chalet. It was a wreck, and yet no one else... Why would he know it was a mess inside? No one has supposedly seen it. He described it actually as a scene of carnage. And... Yet the police and Mario and the friend, when they first went in, it looked like everybody had just gone outside for a walk. It was weird. I'm trying to think of reasons why you would have the binoculars. You live on the Alps. Binoculars probably aren't that weird to kind of have. You live next door. Looking at your neighbour from next door with binoculars, bit weird. But mm. Pip and Tommy. And like you said earlier, the rumour mill starts about some stuff. So it's not that hard for someone to be, oh, it was carnage. I heard there was bear prints in there. Whatever, whatever. You, you could start the dissidents amongst yourselves and just start spitting out fake rumours. You're completely correct, yeah. When police told David he was being moved up the list of suspects for not giving a sample, he gave in. It was a given when two days later it proved the sixth sample was his. They search his home. They find traces of blood from the Flactive family and stuff belonging to the family that did not belong to David or Alexandra. On the 16th of September, police arrest David, Alexandra and their friends, Stefan and Isabel. Okay, did they have anything about Stefan and Isabel at the time? Or is that because stuff that then subsequently David has said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What we know happens next comes from David's later accounts to the police and from the trial, along with the statements from others. David's resentment of his landlord built and he decides to confront him. And it seemed that Zavi owed him money. David had done some odd jobs and Alexandra had done some cleaning and neither of them had been paid, which was Zavi's MO, wasn't it? So it was perfectly reasonable that he was upset about not being paid and going to see Zavi to get his money. What was not reasonable was David taking along a gun that had once belonged to Alexandra's grandfather. And as you mentioned, Karen, it got me wondering about guns in France. It seems France is the 12th place in the world in rankings of gun ownership. 
and an estimated total number of guns held by civilians, both legally and illegally, in France is around 10 million, with some experts saying that the number of illegal guns may be twice the number of legal ones. There are 2.83 deaths per 100,000 people in the population, or around 1,800 deaths per year in France. The USA has 12.21 gun deaths for every 100,000 people in the population. Yeah. The, n- the number. So to own a gun in France, you first need to get a hunting or sporting license. And this has to be regularly renewed and requires a psychological evaluation. Go France! Applicants with any criminal record are automatically refused. And there is also a blacklist of around 18,000 people who are banned from ever owning a gun. Being in possession of a gun without the correct registration carries a maximum penalty of €75,000 and five years in prison. So my bet is that gun was completely illegal and probably a leftover from either the First or the Second World War. David told police that he arrived at the chalet as the children got home from school and waited with them for their father to return. When Zavi arrived home... They argued, and it turned physical. He claimed he fired a shot in self-defence and then realised that he had killed Zavi. He then took the children out. Letitia and Gregory were having an afternoon snack in the kitchen when he killed them. Then he went to look for Sarah upstairs, where he found her in a bedroom, and shot her too. Lastly, he went down to the basement, where Graciela had just entered, and killed her. If that sounds a touch, why would they sit there and not be running at the argument or gunfire? Well, you would be right. Police believe a statement that Alexandra gave them was close to the truth and how they found the DNA. David told her that he had first shot the two children alone in the chalet and then their mother and then the last child and finally Zavi. As he was cleaning up the traces of blood with a flashlight in his mouth, David, overcome with nausea, was disturbed by the call of a tenant of Zavi's and then the arrival of a pizza delivery man. Basically, David threw up. That tenant and that pizza guy must have had stories to tell, but it's lost in the French translation. David told police that he then wrapped the bodies of all his victims in sheets found in the chalet, hence the beds being stripped upstairs, and then carried them out to the land cruiser one by one and then cleans up the house. He then drives about six miles into the forest and started a funeral pyre with the family in the middle. Five bodies. David tells police that it took about three hours for the bodies to be reduced to next to nothing. Investigators find the site. They could tell that there were remains of a fire and the forensic team managed to find bone particles, teeth and vertebrae. Eventually the fragments were all linked to the family. But police and investigators are full CSI mode now. They don't believe that the fire would have taken three hours. They try and replicate the exact conditions from that night in May using pig carcasses dressed and then wrapped in sheets. The results were very different to what they found with David's fire. The pig carcasses were only cremated by about 20%. David lied, but which bit 
they try again. They build another funeral pyre and discover that it could have only been done with 180 kilograms of wood. That's almost 400 pounds. That may sound a lot, but if you work it out by the size of a standard wooden pallet that you have stuff delivered on, which is roughly four foot by four foot, it would only be about 10 pallets. It's still a lot of pallets, though, and not something you would have lying about. And if he's using wood found in the forest, it made even less sense. That would be wet. Yeah. So it's not going to go up. No. Is this when they start suspecting other people of being involved? Because then where is he getting the pallets, etc.? Well, the police have already got... They're already I know, I know They've got all four people, but I'm, this is then further linking them. Well, they just don't believe that, it, that what he's saying is true. And I'm on a list somewhere again. Um, it seems the cremation oven gets to between 1,400 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 765 to 982 degrees Celsius. And it takes two to three hours to complete the cremation process of one body. So I look at funeral pyres, which are traditionally used in some cultures. That, on average, would take 1,300 pounds of wood, not the 400 that he supposedly used. But it does reach about 800 degrees and takes roughly four hours for one body again. Now, I know during COVID there were mass funeral pyres, but it must take much longer the more bodies you burn. I know he was six miles outside the village, but no one saw or smelt a thing. However, all of this to the police proved premeditation. There is no way he could have done this without prepping a site first. They've arrested four people, as we said, not just David, Alexandra and the friends Stefan and Isabel. There is a saying, stupid is as stupid does. All three of the others gave the police the exact same statement. David did it all by himself and he just snapped. The police are like, yeah, it's rehearsed. If David told them to say that I don't know, or the three of them thought they could save themselves, we don't know. Eventually, Stefan cracks and he tells the police another story, which again is probably closer to the truth. According to him, he and David had planned to kill the family on 9th of April. Stefan was supposed to strangle the children with a rope and David would take care of Zavi and Graciela. But Stefan got cold feet. Yet two days later, David decided on his own plan. The thing was... It seemed that the discussion about the murder of this family had been a pastime for all four of them. They had spent months together chatting about it. David seething and getting more wound up about Zavi's apparent success and affluence and his own personal failures. It may have never gotten further than after dinner drunken discussions if David hadn't watched a documentary about Alfredo Stranieri, known as the classified ads killer. This guy would respond to adverts and murder the sellers. David takes it all on and he says that Alfredo was an idiot for burying the bodies and better disposal was needed. Hence the funeral pyre. David somehow thinks that if he killed off the whole family, he can take over Zavi's house and he will be the man again. Alexandra had really done a number of him, but it also shows just how weak of a character he was. 
how he was going to take over the guy's house, it makes absolutely no sense. During quite literally moving into his yes. house and being like, oh, Xavi left. I'm now overseeing all these contracts. Yes. That's exactly With what no he did. With no knowledge of said contracts yeah. or how the industry works in any capacity. Yeah. David then changes his mind about his confession that he'd given to the police. He didn't do it. And he says, I'm a victim here. David tells police that he was in the home to confront Xavi when two men came in and attacked them all. He was a victim too, being knocked unconscious, and he woke up after the massacre, after the fact. Fearing that the murders would be pinned on him, he set out to clean up the scene and dispose of the bodies, as you do. Didn't take much for the police to disprove anything, really. They declare that Xavi was killed first, then the children, and then Graziella last. Phone evidence contradicted David's statement regarding the timeline of the murders. Graciela's last phone call was around 5pm. The children usually got back from school shortly after 5. Zavi was still making calls after 6pm. David also claimed that he had shot all of the victims with the firearm he had taken with them. Police believe he did shoot Zavi, but they think he bludgeoned Graciela and each of the children to death most likely with a piece of firewood. Now, I wondered if that was because that gun was from Alexandra's grandfather's era and it broke or jammed, and hence the bludgeoning, and why they only found one shell casing. I was wondering that when he said that he'd killed them in all these different places with the gun, Yeah, and there's only one left. Yeah, please don't. I'm, th- I'm, th- I'm thinking, did he pick them all up, pick up what he's supposed to be, but he forgot this one? Did they ever find the gun? No, not that I'm aware of. Again, lost in translation. David was charged with the murders. Alexandra, Stefan and Isabel were only charged with failing to report crime. November 2004. David won an injunction against the rap group Cynic, who included the line David Hotchat, child killer, in one of their songs. The French High Court upheld David's presumption of innocence. Remember that chalet David and Stefan burned down? They get three years in prison in 2004 whilst awaiting the trial for the murders for that. David also tries to kill himself twice whilst in custody, obviously unsuccessfully. June 2006, David, then aged 33, goes on trial. David's defence? It was Alexandra's fault. No, bro, you've changed your story up four times now. I don't matter what, we're going with the first one, that's what you get. Oh no, it was all her fault, he was her puppet. And if she hadn't been nagging at him, he would never have done it. It didn't help his ego that Alexandra had met someone else in the intervening time and had another child. The press speculated heavily it was to try and get a more lenient sentence for her part in the conspiracy. David was found guilty of murdering all five members of the Flactive family. He was sentenced to life with a minimum of 22 years. The rest of this little group were eventually charged with various conspiracy acts rather than the failure to report a crime. Stefan got 15 years, Alexandra got 10 years and Isabel got seven. The reporting 
fall over has stated that the original argument between David and Zavi was about his refusal to give David and Alexandra a permanent home. But it wasn't. It was the money Zavi owed them and the resentment David had developed that this guy had done better than him. They both came from poor beginnings. It's a compounding factor, though. Yeah. He's been constantly moved around. It feels like he's not part of the in crowd in this village. Zavi owes him money. He blames him. He's got these four other people around him that are kind of adding to that and confirming his beliefs in the first place. Created like an echo chamber. Yep. We, there's that saying everyone jokes about killing the boss because they wind them up, but they actually did it because they resented them enough. Yeah. I mean, Zavi may have been a dodgy business guy, but he didn't deserve to die. And his family being collateral damage is absolutely extreme. They had no bearing. I don't get why you'd harm the children at all. No. I, I don't agree, but I can see why David would hold some resentment because it is resentment incarnate with how he feels about Zavi. But the wife... She had nothing to nothing do with it. it. And the kids especially are completely innocent. Imagine how it feels for the stepchild, Mario, yeah. turning up. If, if he had been there a day earlier, he could have been a victim himself as well. Yeah. So he's going to he's gonna have some weird survivor's guilt involved. Yeah. And it, it, as far as he was concerned, you know, he loved his mum. He had no problem with Zavi. And, Why know, would he? He's a 12-year-old. Yeah, and, you know, he's, everything's been wiped out. Luckily enough, he's still got his father. But like you say, he could have been a victim as well, and that's got to mess with your head. It's got to mess with your head. But, yes, a very strange case of a little tiny, tiny village that looked like something from a milk advert. You know, all these little chalets and rolling hills, but covered in snow in the winter. I mean, it's idyllic, isn't it, for, for most people? But it turned out to be absolutely dreadful. And finally, the victims who should not be forgotten. Zavi, aged 41. Graciela, aged 36. Gregory, aged 7. Letitia, aged 10. And Sarah, aged 11. So everyone, thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Murder Me Monday Podcast. If you liked it, please like it. If you really liked it, then please consider subscribing to our Patreon where you get exclusive content and episodes in advance. And we'll see you next time. Peace. Bye. My Instagram is Cam Carpocus. Bye. <laughs>